You are listening to episode 9 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On today's podcast, we review three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. We also look at the upcoming Oscars race as many of the precursors are starting to release their awards. Also, our power rankings are all about Christmas movies. All that and more coming up on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for launch. There is a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast, episode nine. Uh, I'm here once again with Todd and Zach. I'm Terry Plucknett. Thanks for listening so much to us. How's it going, guys? Awesome. Spectacular. All right, well, we're coming to you guys. Uh, we're recording on Sunday morning. It's when our schedule's all worked out. We took last week off with the, with the holiday weekend. We're coming to you on Sunday morning, and we are about an hour and a half removed from the revealing of the college football playoff uh, top four, uh, and with as much sports as we love to talk, I think we have to just mention it a little bit here. Uh, Todd, I know you have some strong opinions. What are your thoughts on the uh, top four? Well, it, it is kind of a joke, the fact that the SEC is the worst it's been in at least 12 years, and they are the first conference to get two teams in just because the rest of the conference sucks, and so the top two got a really good record. So, yeah, it'll be fun to watch Alabama-Clemson again and again and again. Sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. I Alabama getting in... I don't get it. I it's just I think it's terrible. Zach, what did you think? Uh, well, seeing as I can't even name the quarterbacks for Clemson or Georgia, I can't say I'm fully invested um, in this group. Uh, but I can say that the Ducks ended on a real strong note, and I hope we do well in the Cactus Bowl. If you keep your coach. If you keep your coach. <laughs> but I'm also excited for the Scott Frost era. What are your thoughts about that? Yes, I think it was the only real choice to uh, to become the new coach at Nebraska. It's going to be great. I know you're excited because he coached Oregon for a while. Um, yeah, he's. I hope it works out. But yeah, uh, alum coming home from Nebraska, it's it's the perfect storm. All right, well, once again, uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you uh, like what you're listening to, rate us and review us on iTunes so we can be heard by more people. You can find us all over the Internet. AlmostSideways.com has our database of ratings and reviews, uh, as well as what we think on sports. We have a sports section of AlmostSideways.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, you can find Adam with the Almost Sideways podcast. It is December now, which is his Star Wars month on that channel. So definitely tune into all the great things that are going to be happening there. He's got like 30 different people contributing to this. I'm one of them. Thank you very much. You can see me on there. Um, but anyways, you, it'll be uh, it'll be really good there. Let's move ahead in our podcast and get to our movie reviews. I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances. I did not really like this film at all. Movie reviews. Today, uh, we are going to be talking about a new movie that just came out that's getting a decent amount of awards buzz. 
And that is the new Martin McDonough film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This film came up a couple weeks ago on our podcast. It's why we did a power ranking of dark comedies, because this is definitely a dark comedy. Um, Zach, you're going to start us out in talking about this. Uh, what's it about, and what did you think? Okay, well, first of all, there is no such place, actually, as Ebbing, Missouri. Um, I looked it up when I first read about this movie, uh, as I'm someone who lives relatively close to the Missouri border. So, there's that. That's a flaw in the movie. No, it's not. Um, okay, so, uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is the latest film by Martin McDonough. He's the uh, Irish-British uh, playwright and director of In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths films that I think it's fair to say we all enjoyed. Uh, we saw it. Terry and I saw it in Bruges. Todd, were you there when we saw it in Bruges at Cinema 21? I can't remember. Okay, that was, a, was there too. that was a really fun movie. Well, there we go. It was just like a family reunion. Um, speaking of family reunions, what's the deal? You both saw it together, like, and now you know what you both think of the movie? Well, whatever. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that later, maybe. Um, <laughs> three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is the story of uh, Mildred, played by Frances McDormand, and she is... Uh, a woman in the town who's recently uh, lost her daughter. Her daughter was r brutally raped and murdered, and uh, she feels as though the, pol the local law enforcement have not done enough to try to solve the murder uh, and capture her killer. So um, in an effort to draw attention to the authorities' lack of um, involvement, she purchases three billboards outside the town and puts up uh, basically a writing that implicates the uh, sheriff or the local police chief played by Woody Harrelson. Um, why why no arrests will, really be, will it be uh, raped while dying? Um, I think that's what a couple of them say. So this sparks local outrage among the citizens in this kind of podunk community who rush to tend to rush to the defense of uh, Chief Willoughby over uh, Mildred. And so the film kind of looks at uh, this kind of war were of words between these characters. Um, I think McDonough tries to draw a portrait of morally complex and ambivalent characters. Um, some of Mildred's actions are highly defensible, such as asking for justice, but then she does things also in the film that are uh, pretty vicious and malicious, um, going after particular characters. There's also one of the deputies in the, in the film who's played by Sam Rockwell. Um, he's presented as sort of this backwards, kind of racist, uh, corrupt cop, and but he has uh, more moral complexity, too, than what initially meets the eye. Um, on paper, I like the idea of moral complexity and ambiguity. Uh, I think there's some fun dialogue throughout the film. Um, and I really like Frances McDormand's performance. I mean, she's being lauded as a potential best actress frontrunner. Unfortunately, the film didn't really add up for me. Um, and we'll kind of get into more of the specific reasons why, maybe in the next couple minutes. So we'll put a spoiler uh, warning here coming up soon. But the bottom line is, I felt like the movie was really obvious in the way that it tried to show uh, characters reacting. It, it was like um, you know trying to swat a mosquito with a sledgehammer. Uh, the emotions were really overt and very obvious. Um, there, it was overwritten and very glib at times, and it was also really improbable. Um, there were some circumstances that were extremely kind of convoluted along the way, 
And uh, I also, in the end, sort of thought that many of the characters were pretty irre unredeemable. Um, not so much Francis McDormand, but the Sam Rockwell character, who I found really grating and annoying. I had no sympathy for him, and I think the, the film wanted us to generate sympathy for him. So, um, in the end, it's a clever premise. There's some good components to it, but I was actually fairly disappointed by the film, and I give it uh, two stars. Terry, what were your thoughts? Well, uh, I would uh, have to disagree with most of what you said All right. on, on critiquing the film. Um, I thought this was an absolutely fantastic movie. I, um, I love all the characters, um, and I love how Martin McDonough is able to come up with characters that you can relate to, but are also almost like caricatures in some ways, where they are they're over-exaggerations of of the the characteristics they they portray at times to make his point and i think that's a it's a really good um he's very good at it uh, i think when i saw it, the what i um related this to is it's it's very similar film to fargo in in that it's it's about something that is this brutal act but it finds a way to be quirky in the way it discusses it and the characters um, keep it uh, lively. I know, Todd, you had some uh, some comparisons, too, that you had along with Fargo for it. Yeah, I said it was like Fargo meets Manchester by the Sea meets uh, Hell or High Water. Yeah, so you had, you had Fargo with, you know, the, there's this, this mystery around the circumstance of what's going on. Manchester by the Sea, as you have these characters that are dealing with grief and... Um, and Hell or High Water as you have this, like, unredeemable justice kind of working itself through. I, I loved it. I thought it was a very entertaining trip to the trip to the movies. Um, I, I, I'm with you. Francis McDormand was absolutely amazing. I thought Sam Rockwell gave one of his better performances, and I think he's finally going to get the Oscar nomination he's always deserved. Um, but, I, yeah, I love this. I love this movie. I loved everything about it. I think it's it's potentially going to go down as one of the masterpieces of dark comedy along with Fargo. Um, and Martin McDonough has shown once again that he knows this genre so well and can produce some great things in it. I gave it four stars. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I more tend to agree with Terry on this. Um uh, I yeah I, again I really like the characters I think Sam Rockwell it's a very high war performance I, I actually think the only thing I could think of is in like 15 years this would be the role that Shia LaBeouf would play and but his character I feel like is the uh, Mark Wahlberg in The Departed of this year like he's got all the good lines and he's sort of like on his own doing his thing with like this huge uh, plot going on around him and. Uh, I don't know, I, th I think it's like a tough movie to watch, but it's also really entertaining at the same time. I said Manchester by the Sea because I feel like with these characters, uh, they're in this like really tough predicament, but yet they, they, they say these things that are like outrageous and like borderline insensitive and offensive and inappropriate, and like that makes you sort of laugh through the pain of what's going on, which I, which I sort of appreciate. But this movie is obviously more funny than Manchester by the Sea was like a depressing drama. I think it's interesting that this movie comes out in the same year as Wind River, which has, like, a similar type of story and represents, like, the opposite end of, like, police work. 
This would represent, like, bad police work, and Wind River would more be, like, the more noble side of of that in this sort of, in this sort of case. And, uh, I don't know, I, I think Frances McDormand probably should be the frontrunner for Best Actress. She probably will win unless they want to give Meryl a fourth Oscar, or if they really take the Lady Bird as much as everyone else seems to have. But uh, she gives the movie that Cohen flair, which yeah, I think is needed for this type of like really black comedy. And I don't know, I, I loved uh, how it was edited, and I loved the music by Carter Burwell. I, I think it's the best movie I've seen in the last three years. So I give it four stars as well. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, you're in the minority here, Zach. <laughs> okay, well... Let's let's talk. Let's go into spoilers because there's a lot in this movie. So if you haven't seen okay, the movie, yeah, spoiler this point, alert! Spoiler alert! And it is worth noting forward. that even though I give the movie thumbs down, it's a movie people should see. I mean, it's a movie that is talking about really important issues, and there are really good performances in it. So, uh, but let let let's go into I think maybe d- deeper reasons why I, I have issues with this movie and. I kind of went into it a few minutes ago, but I really didn't find um, the police officers redeemable in any way. I think the, the the thrust of the movie is to show the kind of comeback of the Sam Rockwell character. And because he's introduced as this kind of racist hillbilly who lives with his mother and is uneducated and is drunk half the movie and is just stupid, I, I, I didn't have any sympathy for him at all. I didn't see any kind of moral change over the course of the movie. So asking us to sympathize with him and to a lesser extent the Woody Harrelson character because he permits this kind of gross injustice and police brutality to happen under his watch I mean for you know they throw a guy out the window right across the street from the police headquarters I don't know why we're supposed to like the police at all uh, I think it's supposed to be morally ambiguous but I, I didn't I didn't see any sort of justification for it I don't know I, I don't feel like you're supposed to necessarily accept that I don't know it's like that's sort of the point. You're like t- the the police were that incompetent. It's like this little this small town thing where it's like, yeah, this this crime happened. We couldn't solve it, so we're just gonna let it go. And so like a policeman throwing a guy out a window, it's like nothing happens for like a long time because that's what would actually happen in that scenario, right? I mean, you're you're not supposed to think that that's like correct or something. I think it's interesting that you you have it. It's set in this small midwest town and so it is believable that you have someone like this sam rockwell character that you get the sense that he really doesn't know better because he's lived in this town his whole life he's become who he is i mean they joke at one point it took him what six years to get through the police academy when he had to skip or he had to redo a couple years of it i mean he's not a very smart man he's always lived there this is his reality and i i wouldn't say necessarily he's he, they they try to redeem him at the end, but he realizes what um, what his pol- what being a policeman is all about, and that and you when he has that letter that he reads where it's kind of like going through, you know you you can be be good if you just stop and think <laughs> every now and then. And I think that that really became the turning point for him where he stopped thinking about how can I mess with the people that are messing with me and instead do my job no matter what I think of them. Sure, sure. And, you know, we we see him gradually get uh, more moral as the movie goes along, and we see him rescue the evidence uh, of the Mildred Hayes case 
from the burning building, which is great. And then in one of the most improbable scenes that comes out of, you know, 1920s movies, you know, he overhears the confession of the rape and murder in the bar and he does something about it, which is great. But I mean, come on, this guy, this guy's not supposed, I, I didn't find anything likable about him. He's, he's a loser and he's someone who goes very much against what law and order is supposed to represent. And the most morally uh, noble figure in the movie is, is Mildred and yet everyone is so uh, against her. And on paper, that's, that's okay. I, I like the idea of showing how these people are, are uh, stupid and, and ill-conceived in, in how they try to uh, have these personal, personal attacks against Mildred. But I think the movie wants us to emotionally connect with the, the, the police force. And I just, I never did. I thought they were all idiots and I didn't have any sympathy for him. I mean, even the letters that are written by the Willoughby character, which by the way, by the, by the second and third letters, I'm getting a little tired of the narration, okay? So it's like, how, I mean, I, you know, he's giving this, these words of wisdom to everyone. I just, I just didn't care. I, 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 I didn't buy it. I, I don't know. I, it, it didn't work for me. I don't, I don't know. The confession scene, what I liked about it is it wasn't actually what was the solving of the case. Like, I mean, it seemed like it was going to be that, but it really ended up just being like some random thing about oh, some it's screenwriting 101. It's not even it's not even screenwriting 101. I mean, it's like it's like high school writing. Yeah, That's like the most obvious if, if thing that, that could ended happen. up being the actual guy that they were looking for. But then I, I love that it, doesn't it led to that last scene where, the, where they're driving off to Idaho. Like I felt like it was the end of Twenty Fifth Hour or something like that. Like that—that's what that scene kind of reminded me of. Oh, and then then he needed to make it a, more of a happy ending by them saying, "Well, maybe we won't really kill him." You know, he needed to—he he couldn't go through. He couldn't execute what he actually wanted to do as a director, so he had to—he had to kind of nudge. Okay, a couple other pointers I wanted to write down real fast. Okay, number one: Who carries a fire extinguisher in their car? Who does? Do you, Todd? Do you, Terry? <laughs> Uh, they do. Uh, the the FedEx exactly. trucks actually exactly. have fire extinguisher in them. She's not driving a FedEx truck, man. Saying. She's driving her stupid Some station wagon. Do. <laughs> actually, I asked. Well, she my... was she was potentially on her way to go throw Molotov cocktails later on. Well, so you okay, never know. and I did to say that to my wife, and she said my dad does. So yeah, Sam. Sam She's I got know a pretty good does. arm. Okay, by there the way. we go. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, that was going to be my. No yeah, those were some incredible throws. I mean, that. Were, and why couldn't she just cross the street? Oh, by the way, that leads me to another issue in this movie. You're telling me that it just so happens that the sign stores across the street from the police station. That seems. That contrived. seems like the only I mean, really, part of the city that has any buildings, though. Like that. That is like Main Street. And it, it just so happens that there's a sign store, run across the street by the, this guy who you know looks like he's about 25 years old. It just it didn't feel real at all. Um, uh, okay, uh, another thing I really didn't like was the news reporter. I thought she was really annoying and completely unrealistic. This town is supposed to be like a thousand people, right? So why, is she, why does she keep on coming back to this town and giving her editorializing in the news reports? Very much like a history of violence. Just, just uh, uh, you know, stupid. Um, There's our token why history does of violence reference. That's awesome. Well, and maybe maybe there is something about history violence here. And Todd, I really liked your comparison to Manchester by the Sea. By the way, actually, I, I like both of your comparisons. I think those are spot on. I guess to to find levity in such a serious situation takes a really sort of um, uh, flexible and uh, agile writing. And I just didn't feel like this movie had it. I didn't. I thought it, it was too funny to really contemplate how dark the undertones of the story were and too serious to be taken lightly it just it couldn't really find find the middle in the in the same way that fargo did 
I don't know. I, I think McDonough ha- is able to find that balance in all his movies. I think Seven Psychopaths is actually a little bit more serious than this in that way, but this one is a more, like has a more dark tone, I guess, but I don't know. I, 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 I really don't agree with that. <laughs> well, I feel like I when I was watching it, the, uh, the premise that it put forth, once it put that forward, you kind of... I felt like all the scenarios that came from it weren't that far-fetched. Um, and one thing, to go back on something that you were saying before, I uh, I disagree with you some on uh, the Willoughby character. I think the Willoughby character is a very moral character in this. Um, he's just stuck in the situation he's stuck in. Um, and he... But once he's confronted with it, he yeah he takes another look at the at the case and and tries to figure something out. But it was a cold case. There wasn't anything there to figure out. I I disagree with you on that one. Um, I think the circumstantial stuff it it is a little quirky. It is a little different at times. But um, the the way that the the scene that you were talking about that you thought was um, you know it's like something you'd see back in the in the 40s of how he hears what happened I think it is um, it goes back to when he said you know these cases this is the only way anything ever comes of these cases because there's no evidence pointing to anybody so it's gonna take someone to just randomly hear someone talking about it that's the only way a case like this gets solved. Now, for it to happen in that okay. town just a few weeks after all this happens, sure, that's part of putting it together to make it a movie, but I don't think it's that far-fetched to put it all together in in that moment. And I also think, like you, you were saying, I think it had a very good balance of serious and, and comedy. I didn't think that it was uh, off-kilter at all, like you were saying. I felt you had these characters that were coping with whatever was going on and then you had some characters like I said that were more more exaggerations but because of who they were this was real life for them and it was seeing the comedy in the real life scenarios that came out of the premise that was built I just think it's so totally random that some guy comes into a bar, some guy not even from Missouri, from Idaho, comes into a bar and basically confesses to a murder. Even if it's not the murder of, of the, the daughter, it's still just so contrived and so easy, uh, so easy as a screenwriter. I wish he had been more imaginative in how that reveal could have happened. And I look back at a film like Wind River, which has a similar story, as, as you said, Todd, but actually um, did a, a lot more kind of digging in terms of how these characters find out about what actually happened to this dead girl. I mean, that that's a I think a lot more interesting and complex. Um, I would also say too that I don't. F- I mean, to go back to this one more time, Willoughby is corrupt. Okay, the guy has not solved this murder. The guy permits police brutality as pol- at his police department. The Sam Rockwell character goes across the street and throws a guy out of a window. I mean, this is a police department that does that. That it seems ri- ridden with corruption, and that's why this other guy comes in and tries to solve the problem. Think about the character of Denise, the woman that works with the Francis McDormand character. She's arrested just as a way to get to the Francis McDormand character and the police like it. They say great job. That's a great tactic to kind of get closer to her. And then also think about the John 
Hawke's character, who is in the Willoughby, in the same way that Willoughby is supposed to be the somewhat sympathetic, likable character who beat up his wife. I don't buy it. These are not like the, the men in this movie are not likable really at all, with the exception, of course, of of um, our uh, our great friend. Uh, oh, I'm I'm blanking on the name here. The 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 the, the midget, Peter of Dinklage. Course. Yes, who is you know a pretty noble guy, and I, I like him. I thought his scenes were pretty funny, and I think the line about him holding the ladder for her is the best line in the movie. But other than that, I don't find them redeemable, and I wish the movie had just been about Francis. Well, the, the whole point. Let's just stop for a second and say, why in the world is once again Martin McDonough writing about midgets? I mean, we—it's—he's it, made three movies, and two of them, a central figure is a little person. <laughs> That's very true. But I don't. You're not exactly. You're not supposed to like the characters. Like, like you're not supposed to like the guy characters. That, yes, that's the you whole are. Point of the the police, the the police being the way they are. No, is, they're supposed to be friendly, happy, likable. You're not supposed to you're like supposed them. To pat like, them on the Zel, back. Zelko yeah, isn't likable. Uh, I mean, Sam Rockwell. You're supposed to laugh at how dumb he is, but you're not supposed to agree with yeah, him. Like, yeah, this you is know, the whole he's a point harmless of the movie. Guy. It's topical. It's like police do, especially in these small towns. Oh, it is topical. It's, it's topical, but it's tone-deaf in its topicality. It takes place in Missouri, and yet the black characters are systematically wiped out of the movie. There are, she's, you know, Denise is arrested, but, well, yeah, you know, it's just kind no, of collapsed. I mean, the, the one guy I mean, who was uh, painting the billboard, like, he, he had a pretty, uh, a pretty uh, tough line to Sam Rockwell's character, and I don't know. And it, this, honestly, like, the, the, the reveal scene, like, the, the point of that scene was that he heard what he wanted to hear. He was sitting there in a bar... Like he always is, and he and he finally got like something in his head, like he was actually going to do something good. So he hears this guy talking behind him, bragging about about like what gang raping this girl or something like that. And he just like connected the dots, and we're supposed to connect the dots too because that's what we're led to think. But he heard what he wanted to hear. It wasn't like this was like this like point blank uh, uh, confessing to the the crime that he want that that uh that had just happened it was it was something completely unrelated and it was a, a drunk guy like bragging about how he hooked up with some girl that or whatever i don't know it was i like that that was the whole point of that scene it wasn't supposed to be like this big reveal like this is the killer and i just found out right after i found out that i should be looking for the killer you know well we interpret that scene differently, Todd. I, I interpreted it as the big reveal, even though it didn't ultimately end up being it. Well, I, I, lo I love the, the fact other... that that ended up leading to them driving off to Idaho just to, like, mess up this other this, this guy's life because they knew he was a scumbag, and that's the way that they're coping with the grief. Like, like she wouldn't be doing this if she... It, like, it, I mean, if that was a killer, she'd absolutely be doing that. But she's... This is, like, her only option at this point to, like, make herself feel better, and this is how she's coping with the grief, by going to do whatever, like, arson or whatever they're going to do to this guy's house or kill him or whatever, you know? That's fine. I, I, I didn't, Actually, I didn't have a problem with the last scene. I thought that was actually not a bad last scene. I just wish it had gotten there more imaginatively, more creatively. I can't think of any move, of any person that goes into a bar randomly in the middle of nowhere and talks about the murder that they committed, other than maybe Steve Buscemi in Fargo, in a scene that is, you know, talked about but not actually seen in the movie. But what do I know? So you're saying it's okay for Steve Buscemi to do it in Fargo, but not okay for this guy to do it in Three Billboards? Yeah, Fargo's a better movie. Plus, it didn't show the scene in Fargo. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't like the. I mean, it wasn't really as important in Fargo as it was in this movie. If we're drawing, but it turned out not being important at all. It might not have even happened to begin with. He might have just been talking. Huh. Like that's the whole point. Like th this is just some like yeah. guy, and who's telling a story 
in a bar to make himself look cool to this other guy. I don't know. I agree. It's it's out. You're you're convincing. Tom. I agree. It it it. It sounds like what you're saying, but if you watch it in the movie, it occurs at the climax. It, 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 to me, I interpret it as McDonald's saying, oh, we broke the case open. Whoop-de-doo. You don't think that's ironic, Lazy the writing. fact that it absolutely meant nothing, but we're, like, we're led to think that like this is like the most important scene in the movie? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a letdown, quite honestly. I mean, we want to find the killer of, you know, Francis McDormand's yeah, and, daughter. Yeah, and it never happens. By the way, just, I think like, you... Most of these cases are right. never solved. Like, that's the whole point. Well, okay, but then compared to Wind River, see Wind River, which by the way, I didn't even I didn't love Wind River, but at least Wind River had some kind of closure. I mean, it had it, it showed something, and even if this was a completely random case, I don't know. I wish the focus had been more about the mother's grief and not about this corrupt police department that we're supposed to pat on the back and like. I think the difference between this and Wind River is Wind River is a fresh case that just happened that they're investigating. Yeah. Well, this case True. is at least six months old. They're, I mean, True. it's Francis McDormand asking the cops to go back and look at a cold case, which has a very different feel to it. Because all this stuff you're talking about that happened in Wind River happened six months before this movie happened in, in the story of Three Billboards. So it's a very different circumstance, even though it's a similar uh, topic. True, but I wish the movie had been more about the murder, is I guess maybe my critique. Because I think it's an interest. We don't know what happened to this girl. We don't know why it happened. And to just kind of leave it out there like that and to instead focus on these kind of clumsy characters in the town, I think belittles the, the gravity. So you of wanted the to actually and see I, the, and, like a flashback scene to what actually happened? Like eventually you wanted it completely solved? A la, a, la rent, a la Wind River? No, not necessarily, but I wish the movie had had, had more of a focus on it instead of these Keystone cops in the middle of Missouri. But it's a comedy after all, right? I mean, that's what McDonough does. He has these quirky characters. and True. Yeah, I mean, you can't change a movie for in, in uh, not to make it not what it actually is. I get that. But uh, I felt like this was a compelling enough story about the mother that I don't know why we had to focus on the Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell characters as much. I also have another theory that I want to say about this movie before we can move on is that, like, I feel like Martin McDonough didn't write this movie for Americans. I felt like watching this movie with all the profanity and all these shocking things that are said and done, this feels like nil by mouth more than an American movie. Do you know what I mean, Todd? Like, the, 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 the swearing is so much like East End London or something like that. It didn't feel like, you know, what characters in Missouri would really be saying, but I don't know. Like, the son calling his mom the C-word? Give me a break. I mean, I, that, yeah. that, that felt British. True. Me. I mean, well, I mean, that... The sort of, I mean, I think some psychopaths is sort of the same way too, and obviously in Bruges, like he definitely is an Irish filmmaker, but it's like, I don't know, it is it's more American than those at least. I don't know. I've never been in Missouri. I don't know what I don't know what they actually sound like. I will say the movie. I, I wanted to praise the movie's locations because it really does look like Western Missouri, except I learned later on Wikipedia that it was shot in North Carolina, so I can't even praise that. <laughs> Uh, I think, here's what I think. I think if it had said written and directed by the Coens on, in the opening credits instead, you would have liked the movie a lot more. Uh, well, well, I guess we'll never know. I'm sure the Coens, I'm sure the Coens saw the movie. This is much more of an Ethan movie than a Joel movie. I'll, I'll put it that way. How, how do you differentiate that? (laughs) I mean, I know their personalities, but still, like, he's never directed a movie by himself. Well, Ethan... Ethan likes the quirky, vulgar humor, and Joel likes being cinematic. So this movie is more on the, the former than the latter. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> yes, yes. 
All right, well, let's wrap this up. Um, oh, also, uh, Zach mentioned this before. This was, Todd, this was probably the first time in how long that we went and saw a movie together? I mean, it's been like three years at least, right? At least three years, and we were able to go see this one together. And it was me, you, and Adam all went to this movie together. So Zach, you were you were MIA. You had to fly out to. Uh, hey man, I didn't to, even get uh, an invite. <laughs> well, well, next time we will invite you to fly out. The next time we're gonna all see a movie together, so we can uh, have an almost sideways viewing party of. Well, something. why don't why don't you fly here? Then we could actually go to Ebbing, Missouri, which doesn't exist, but. <laughs> Missouri exists, sadly. Uh, all right, so uh, let's let's wrap up. Uh, I give three billboards four stars. Todd, I give it four stars. Best movie since Boyhood. Oh wow! And Zach, wow, uh, two stars, and that's generous. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be one of those we Francis, just disagree about. That's for Frances McDormand, and she was excellent in this movie. So. I, I don't have any issues with her. I wish the movie had been just about her. All right. Well, there you go. There you go. We have uh, very differing views on that movie. So either go see it or stay away from it. Well, no, Zach, no, you even no, said every, go everyone, see it. Everyone should go see it because I think even in its flaws, it's still interesting. It's never boring. I'll give it that. And even in the ways that it, it shortchanges some of the characters, it's still worth watching. In a well, I think way. there's there's something to a saying that a film has quality to it if it's something that people need to see. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. All right. So, uh, moving on from our movie review, we're now going to do some archive movie reviews and look back at some anniversaries being celebrated in the month of December uh, this year. I will start this one off as uh, I have uh, the most recent of our, of our, um, our anniversaries. And I'm going to be talking about the 10th anniversary of one of my favorite guilty pleasure films that I can watch as much as I can. It, it's, it's hilarious. And that is Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. It is the best comedy about music since Spinal Tap. It is absolutely incredible the music in it is hilarious i own the soundtrack and i listen to it all the time uh john c Riley plays a caricature of of johnny cash bob dylan the beatles he kind of parodies every type of music group and every type of musical biopic in this film and it is absolutely hysterical from start to finish i am so sad that more people haven't seen this and more people don't love it as much as I do, but Walk Hard celebrating 10 years uh, this month definitely worth seeing if you haven't seen it uh, If not for nothing else, the music alone the all original music is absolutely hysterical, and like I said, best musical comedy since Spinal Tap That is a great choice, I love that movie too, I agree, the soundtrack is uh hilarious and uh, actually somehow good quality at the same time and and it, it, if you're listening to this since we just talked about martin mcdonough look up on youtube uh dewey cox singing let me hold you little man it is it, it will make your day yeah i would i would second everything you said terry except i would be intrigued if jack black had played had played dewey cox that's the only Ooh. lingering question i have 
That would be it. No, see, I think John C. Riley's perfect for it. John C. Riley was the but... perfect fit. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Todd, what do you uh, got? My milestone review is uh, it's been 30 years and since Wall Street was released. Uh, the movie uh, may not be looked at as a classic by many, but I think it's one of the best movies of the 80s. Uh, Charlie Sheen is the main character. He plays Bud Fox, who's a young stockbroker, starts at a firm that's run by Gordon Gecko, which is played by Michael Douglas in his Oscar-winning role. And he sort of takes him under his wing and, like, exposes him to insider trading and uh, how all the perks of conducting business through, like, shady deals. And I think it's a really fascinating look at Wall Street, and it's got some fairly obvious commentary on, like, greed, loyalty, and what drives men in pa- with power. Uh, definitely an Oliver Stone movie, uh, with right down to the cinematography and the voiceovers. Uh... I don't know. It's a beautiful movie. It's slick. It's it's uh, thrilling and uh, intelligent, and definitely set the stage for like basically every Wall Street movie after that. I think the cast is kind of underrated. It's got like, John C. McGinley's in there, James Spader, Martin Sheen, Hal Holbrook. Uh, the sequel's good as well, but uh, I think this movie is like a borderline masterpiece. It's my number four of 1987. You're absolutely right, Todd. I think it sets the tone for um, a lot of movies about the uh, economic market and Wall Wall Street post-80s, post-boom. And I love the tone that he establishes in the opening, like, 20 minutes of the film. Um, Really awesome. And I believe, wasn't Oliver Stone's father a stockbroker as well? I think I remember reading that. I don't know that. Hmm. Well, anyway, um, I haven't seen the sequel, but I choose to believe that there was no sequel. I think the ending of that movie's perfect the way it is it was like 30 almost 30 years after i mean it's still it is i mean it it doesn't tarnish anything about the end of the movie it's an interesting continuation at least terry did you have any comments about wall street have you seen it i actually have never seen wall street i uh it's one that i have i have uh over a hundred films in my dvd collection that i still need to watch and that is actually one of them so i will be getting to it at some point but yeah i have not seen wall street so my uh milestone film is also from 1987 and i know it's a film that todd likes too because we both talked about it and the film is au revoir les enfants which translates to goodbye children it's a french film directed by louis mal who made um several movies in america and actually uh this was his kind of comeback film in france after he returned um and this was a film that is loosely based uh on an autobiographical incident from his life um, the film is set in this boarding school in occupied France in the 1940s, 1944, I think. And it's a Catholic boarding school, and it tells the story of this 12-year-old boy, Julian, who's precocious, and uh, he, you know, dislikes school. And then he actually one day starts befriending this new student at the school, um, and he starts getting to know this kid more and more, and gradually he realizes, he finds out that uh, he's Jewish. So the film is kind of about... Um, uh, you know, boyhood, growing up, friendship, but it also has this overtone of uh, World War II and the Holocaust hanging over it. And ultimately, not maybe not surprisingly, the film kind of has a tragic turn toward the end. 
Uh, beautifully acted, beautifully restrained film, one of the best films about World War II, and certainly the best film to come out of France in the 1980s, which was otherwise a pretty bad decade for French films, um, with the exception of Jean de Florette, maybe. Uh, and random piece of trivia, Quentin Tarantino named uh, Reservoir Dogs after this film. He saw it on the video shelf and could not pronounce it and thought it looked like the word reservoir and uh, thought, added the word dogs to it. So it has nothing to do with the film, but interesting <laughs> piece of trivia nonetheless. Great film to That's check out. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. That's awesome. But yeah, that, that movie is, uh, is something pretty special. And yeah, it's, I don't know, Louis Maul has a way with directing children. He, like, everything about that movie is just... It's a borderline perfect movie for sure. I would agree. And once Didn't, again, once again, another movie I still need to see. Did not win the best uh, foreign film in 1987, amazingly. So, pretty pretty shocking and harrowing. That is sad. All right. All right. So uh, to recap, I've got the 10 year anniversary of Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Todd. 30 year anniversary of Wall Street. And Zach. The 30-year anniversary of Au Revoir Les Enfants. Okay. Which you should try to say three times fast. Yeah, that, that won't happen very easily. Um, moving on. Uh, most uh, Very recently, Todd, you uh, posted on our blog, and by the way, our blog's been kind of neglected as we've been getting this podcast up and rolling. Uh, Todd made our first post on our blog since July... Yay, we got blog up and running mm-hmm. again. But he made our post for his uh, Golden Globes preview and predictions, and uh, I know you wanted to say a few words and have, have us have a little discussion about uh, the awards season that is about to get started here really quickly. So uh, why don't you uh, give us some thoughts on, on your predictions there, and, uh, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, uh, so... Uh, in the last few weeks, there have actually been a, a few awards organizations that have uh, released their nominations and wins in, in a couple cases. So uh, the the race is becoming a little bit more defined, but uh, the Golden Globes will definitely be a big step in determining what the eventual Oscar nominations might look like because it, it's more of the uh, televised variety and not the critic awards and stuff. But... Uh, the Golden Globes, it should be interesting. I, they, they like, they normally like to go with bigger movies and movie stars, and so I have, uh, I have Dunkirk winning, which might actually be the Oscar favorite, I'm not sure. It's, uh, it, it, the, the July release is, is a little, uh, hard to determine whether it'll actually be remembered by the January, I don't know. But, uh... From the awards that have come out recently, like the, the Satellite Awards that came out, uh, I thought uh, it, it pretty much defined exactly what we know Supporting Actor is going to look like. I think that the nominees are going to for sure be Willem Dafoe, Mark Rylance, Army Hammer, Sam Rockwell, and either Michael Shannon or Richard Jenkins from The Shape of Water. Because uh, they've shown up on all the other awards, too, that they, that they were eligible for. And I think that probably will end up being the Golden Globe nominations, which is not quite what I had when I predicted this, but uh, pretty close. And uh, the National Board Review gave their best picture to The Post, which is not really a typical winner of uh, that award, which actually might m- makes me think that it might actually be better than I thought it was going to be. And uh, Spielberg hasn't won a 
a major award in you know 20 years that could be uh, actually his best movie since then I don't know and Tom Hanks won best actor so he might be a contender for best actor which I didn't really think going in uh, the Spirit Awards came out, and uh, Namdi Asamoah was nominated. He could be the the first uh, Pro Bowler and Oscar nominee. That'd be interesting. I mean, until Doug Baldwin stars in our remake yes, of a few exa- good exactly. Men. Yes, he is <laughs> Dawson. And uh, Three Billboards, I thought was one of the main contenders, but it, it sort of showed up in the Spirit Awards, sort of the same way Milk did, which is kind of weird because it's like the Spirit Awards really like their their sort of bigger budget indie movies and which three billboards would be that and yet it didn't show up in the best feature category it showed up in like everywhere else so it's probably just going to be a best picture nominee and it also ran uh the new york film critics announced uh their winners and lady bird uh, could actually be a major contender which i i find really interesting and uh both lead actor and lead actress were under 25 which uh would be intriguing if that uh, actually translated the Oscars, because that would be uh, really groundbreaking. Uh, the Gotham Awards were announced as well, and Mary J. Blige was nominated there, as well as the Spirit Awards and a couple other places. She might actually be a contender for Best Sporting Actress, which would be uh, an interesting uh, step toward her EGOT. And, uh, and yeah, what, what do you guys think? Anything stand out to you guys? Well, all I would say is, looking at your excellent write-up for the Golden Globes, I pretty much agree with you with everything. I mean, I think you're spot on, with the exception of one category, which is your comedy best comedy musical category. I think you're really underplaying um, the, uh, the likelihood of The Greatest Showman getting a lot of nominations. I find it shocking that that won't get a nomination for best comedy musical. Well, what are you going to um, take out I in that? Think... In that? Like, I, I felt bad leaving out Lady Bird <laughs> and... I, I just don't yeah. know what... I mean, th- those movies seem like pretty slam-dunk nominees in that category, I think. I I think The Disaster Artist and Downsizing and Battle of the Sexes will probably not get nominations. I think The Disaster Artist is too niche of a film. I don't. We don't even know if Downsizing is actually going to be that good and Battle of the Sexes no one's going to remember. I, I think they're going to nominate Girls Trip, The Greatest Showman, and Thor Ragnarok in those three places. Straight off my, uh, my joke, Hollywood Foreign, Foreign Press Association dream lineup. There you go. That could actually be the yeah. lineup right there. <laughs> Spider-Man Homecoming. And Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Um, but I also think we need to think about Tiffany Haddish potentially in the Best Supporting Actress uh, nominees as well. I, I think the Golden Globes is going to be really eager to nominate uh, Girls Trip for several awards, a la Bridesmaids in 2011. And I've even heard some uh, potential buzz for uh, Tiffany Haddish in the Oscar race as well for Girls Trip. Very much so. I also really like your nomination for Aubrey Plaza and Ingrid Goes West, which I believe I texted you about a few months ago. But I, the moment I saw that movie, I thought she was she would have been a great uh, nominee for Best Actress, either at the Globes or the Oscars. She's really good in that. Yeah, movie. I uh, I compared that to Emma Stone in Easy A. Like that was sort of another like uh, movie where the character fit the actress so well and uh it was almost like too good to be true but she uh i don't know i i really like her chances to get nominated there for sure so todd i see you have uh you have three billboards outside ebbing missouri being run as a drama at the golden globes 
I believe in Bruges wa uh, was a, considered a comedy. Right. Uh, do we know for sure if it's being run in one category or the I other? I think that they uh, were campaigning it as a drama, so I, I don't think that they would go against that necessarily. I don't, and I don't think they would nominate it both. That'd be kind of interesting if it did, though. But yeah, in, in Bruges was definitely okay. comedy. Colin Farrell won Best, best Actor in a Comedy. Yeah. And he said he was going to cut his award um, in half and share it with Brendan Gleeson. <laughs> you said uh, you said Dunkirk is a potential uh, Best Picture frontrunner in the Oscars, and you've got it winning your uh, your Golden Globes here. Uh, what are uh, give me two or three movies that are the biggest uh, biggest contenders alongside Dunkirk for the Best Picture Oscar? Now that we've seen a little bit more. Well. I would say, um, I would say Three Billboards at Sedem, Missouri is definitely up there, and depending on how good Darkest Hour ends up being, that would be another major contender being getting the British vote. The Shape of Water, I think, would probably be the Best Director winner, but recently that's not really, like, uh, like four out of the last five years, the Director winner has not been the the Picture winner, so I think that that would be the Director winner, and then the something else would win Best Picture, like The Post, maybe, would be... Uh, call Me By Your yeah, Name. Yeah, Call Me By Your Name is up th would be up there, too. And I think Get Out would be, like, the ultimate, like, crash of the of the awards. If that, was, if that were to get nominated for Best Picture, I would not doubt that that would be high enough in everyone's list that it could potentially win Best Picture, which would be pretty nuts. Uh, Zach, any others that you have that uh, you think would sneak up in there? Uh, uh, girls Trip. Yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> but I would, I would agree with Todd that Dunkirk at this point is the film to beat. I think it's the biggest front runner at this point. So you think Christopher Nolan finally gets his uh, his first uh, Oscar nomination this year? Oh, I think that's that's a uh, that's guaranteed money right there. Wouldn't it be fascinating if? Um, if The Shape of Water is the uh, Best Director winner, and over the last, what, maybe five, six, seven years, you have all three of these, like, top-notch Latin American directors getting a Best Picture Oscar, or Best Director Oscar. It would be four of the last Cuaron, five years that it would Alejandro. be. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Cuaron, and Inyaritu, and then uh, and then Del Toro. Inyaritu again. Um, and Inyaritu again, exactly. Um... Do you, uh, Todd, do you think there are, looking at the Oscars too, because Golden Globes help kind of help us see that, some of the other films are kind of helping us see that, do you see any locks for wins in the major categories at this point? I, I, I find it really hard to think that uh, Willem Dafoe won't win Best Sporting Actor just as a, as a career achievement and the fact that his movie is one of the major contenders and... I don't know, the other characters seem more secondary than than his character does in the Ford Project. I, I think he would be the biggest lock for a win. The, uh, every other category has at least two or three major contenders, but I, I think he's definitely the frontrunner. Zach, do you see anything else in there? Uh, I think the best actress race is coming down to Shearsha Ronan versus uh, Frances McDormand. You don't, you don't think mean, Meryl has a shot? Like, she, she won... She'll get her oblivion. She'll be the obligatory nomination, but no, I'm not saying she'll get a shot. And and I did finally end my media blackout on Phantom Thread. I actually watched the trailer. Uh, it may have been unintentional, but that's okay. And I would agree with Todd that uh, 
really Daniel Day-Lewis probably should not be considered um, a major contender for Best Actor because it's too much like his performance in The Age of Innocence. It's not uh, showy. He'll be nominated for sure, though. But it wouldn't that be interesting though if uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Meryl Streep both get their fourth wins in the same year? I think that'd be interesting. Or is that more interesting than Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan both winning? Well, that would be you know under twenty. That'd be really cool. I mean, yeah. So so some interesting storylines is, is the bottom line. So, so if we're saying Daniel Day-Lewis will not be considered a serious contender, is Gary Oldman kind of considered a soft lock right now for Darkest well, Hour? Well, I don't think anybody's really seen the post. I mean, it won the he won the New York Film Critics, so I, Tom Hanks, so I don't know. I mean, I would say Gary Oldman's a pretty safe bet, but I, I won't say an absolute lock yet. But at the same time, Tom Hanks hasn't been nominated for an Oscar since 2000. So it, and he's been snubbed several times along the way. So I, it would take something, something pretty special to get him in there. Yeah. Well, and I mentioned Tim, Timothy Chalamet is sitting there just like Adrian Brody was in 2002, like as the younger actor in this like loaded category of stars. Like my my lead actor in a drama category, I have Gary Oldman, Daniel Day Lewis, Tom Hanks, and Denzel Washington, and Timothy Chalamet. That, that's definitely like Adrian Brody up against Michael Caine. <laughs> Uh, Daniel Day Lewis, Ta, or Jack Nicholson, and uh, the other one. I don't remember the other one now. Anything? Nicholas Cage. I said Nicholas Cage. And they were all former winners. I know that. Who was it? No, you didn't say Nicholas Cage. Yeah, I don't. I you said three that. others. Then who's the other one? <laughs> Nicholas Cage, Jack Nicholson, Michael Caine, da- oh, and Daniel Day Lewis. Okay. Caine was it. the first. Jeez, one Todd. <laughs> I think I did say all four. Oscar trivia is later. Oscar trivia is later. But yeah, Timothy Chalamet <laughs> is definitely Adrian Brody of that category, and if he wins, that'd be that'd be shocking. He definitely do a R- Roberto Benigni and jump over everybody in the crowd. Well, he'd, I, he'd either do that, or he would, uh, or he would go up and kiss Emma Stone, a la Adrian Brody kissing Halle Berry. True. All right. Uh, moving on from our from our uh, awards talk here, we'll be talking plenty more about this in the uh, in the next month or two as we get prepared uh, for the Oscars. Um, and also, once the Oscar nominations do come out, be looking on almost sideways for our Oscar challenge. I think this is going to be the tenth annual Oscar challenge, which is insane. Anyways, uh, moving on to our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Last we, uh, last podcast, our competition of predicting Adam's list led us to a victory by Zach. So Zach got to pick our topic uh, for this one. And we will once again try and predict Adam's list. Adam couldn't be with us for this podcast, but we do have his list. So we'll look at that at the end. But Zach... Why don't you introduce to us our topic for this week's Power Rankings. The topic for this week's Power Rankings is top Christmas movies, or holiday movies if you prefer. But the only we're going to make it a little bit more interesting. Uh, each of the films that we pick uh, has to be from a different decade, so we cannot choose two films from the same decade. And I have to say, that made this a very, very difficult list to make, because as I was going through it, 
I'm pretty sure, unless I, you know, really stretch the limits of a holiday movie, of a Christmas movie, I'm pretty sure I've only seen Christmas movies in five different decades. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Which made well, and Todd, you predicting said- Adam's list even more hard, because I, I don't even know what he's seen, like, pre-1980 in terms of these kind of movies, so. Okay. So, uh, Zach, why don't you start us out, since this is your list. Uh, start us out with your number five. Okay, well, my number five Christmas movie is uh, a movie from this decade, uh, and it's a film that was referenced on uh, the last podcast we did, and that film is Tangerine by Sean Baker. Um, it's technically a Christmas movie because it takes place on Christmas Eve in Hollywood, and it's the story of two uh, transgender uh, hookers uh, who kind of have these sort of unusual situations as the night kind of progresses. There's a really cool karaoke scene and they have to encounter the you know johns and pimps and such um it sort of has these dark undertones but a very light kind of funny story um about christmas in la uh and it's my number five pick because i can't think of a better christmas movie that came out this decade all right all right i'll go next my uh my number five is also from this decade uh and it is 2010's rare exports a christmas tale uh, a film set in Finland, where in an archaeological dig, they uncover Santa Claus. And after this happens, uh, children start disappearing. And it actually turns into a horror film as Santa starts hunting down the bad kill- children and killing them. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a fascinating film. It is a very strange, off-the-wall film. Uh, definitely a foreign film in, in uh, everything, but it is one of the most unique holiday films I've ever seen. So number five on my list, Rare Exports. All right, both good choices. I would not have thought of Tangerine, but uh, Rare Exports is definitely fun. Uh, mine is also from this decade, and it is uh, the 2014 movie by Joe Swanberg, Happy Christmas. And he, Joe Sonberg is sort of the mumblecore specialist. Uh, the, the tagline for the movie was, Family is the gift that keeps on taking. So you could tell that it's not exactly a happy Christmas movie, which is ironic because of the title. Anna Kendrick is the main character in the movie. She is, plays a 20-something who moves in with her brother and his uh, a writer wife, and uh, who's played by Melanie Linsky. Lena Dunham plays Anna Kendrick's friend, and they sort of in their own drunken, stoned way, help help Linsky out with their career. The movie's set during Christmas, and there's Christmas in the title, but it's not really a Christmas movie necessarily, but, uh, yeah, it is really good, and uh, that's my number five. Happy Christmas. Zach, number four. All right, well, number four um, is uh, from 1990, and that film is Home Alone by uh, the great... Uh, John Hughes. Did he direct that movie? Actually, I should look Christopher that Columbus. Chris Columbus directed. Um, Chris Columbus did. Okay, perfect. Well, uh, Home Alone. I mean, what can what else can you say about it? You know, it's not going to win any Oscars, but it's a film that I grew up with and actually still holds up pretty well. I'm shocked that Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down. I think they're being very adult and cynical and jaded. And uh, to appreciate the movie, you have to be kind of naive and innocent and remember how fun it was at the idea of being home alone and having the house all to yourself. Um, and Macaulay Culkin is just perfect in the movie as uh, Kevin McCallister and uh, you know he's ha- he has great reaction shots and he puts his hands on his face and screams in the mirror and it's very funny and there's 
there's a good message in the movie, and there's some good one-liners. You know, anytime you have uh, Catherine O'Hara um, as the, the mother character, you know, she's a uh, late-night alum, uh, adds great kind of comic flair to the movie. And John Candy, of course, is great in it too. Um, it still holds up. It holds up well to the test of time. And uh, don't see the sequel or any of the sequels. <laughs> well, Ebert, Ebert gave three stars to Home Alone 3, so there you go. He liked Home Alone 3 more than the original, and yet I like Roger Ebert. Adam so actually ranked thing. all, like, five Home Alone movies on his uh, on his uh, YouTube channel recently, so you can check that out. Yeah, yeah so if, if you want to suffer through the torture of hearing about more than just the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll never think about toothbrushes and the American Dental Association the same way again. It's true. It's very true. I remember after that movie, I couldn't think of uh, of uh, basement furnaces the same way again. Yeah, or cheese pizza. Or cheese pizza. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, number four on my list is also a 1990s film. I I was really debating. I probably should have picked Home Alone, but I decided to take a page out of Zach's book and be different. Um, so uh, so my number four is the 1994 film The Santa Claus, which holds a place in my heart for a very similar reason that Home Alone does, is because Santa Claus is was my childhood. Um, this movie stars Tim Allen as an ad exec who, uh, one Christmas, he discovers that Santa Claus is on his roof, and Santa slips and falls and dies. And just as a joke, Tim Allen puts on his jacket and finds out that by putting on his jacket, he has now become the new Santa Claus. Uh, this was right at in the heyday of Tim Allen's power, and he is uh, as good as he's ever been in this film. Uh, it's it's funny, it's cute, it's magical, it's a wonderful uh, holiday family film. The Santa Claus number four on my list, and again, don't see the sequel. The <laughs> sequels. I didn't even know there was a sequel. Multiple. There's two sequels actually. <laughs> Yeah, but the, the the Santa Claus Two is called the Mrs. Claus. By the way, both good choices. I actually do not have a 1990s movie on my list, so makes it interesting. Uh, mine number four is uh, from 1944. It's Meet Me in St. Louis. Um, it's set during Christmas in 1903. It follows uh, the uh, well-off Smith family, and they find out that Mr. Smith is actually getting transferred with his job to New York, so they have to leave their beloved city of St. Louis and the St. Louis Fair. The four daughters really don't want to leave. One of them is played by Judy Garland. She just recently fell in love, and she like is really dreading the move. Um, it's a really nice movie. There's good music, and good performances, and uh, it originated the song Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Uh, I remember in a YouTube video, Abigail Breslin said that it was her favorite movie and that Margaret O'Brien was her all-time favorite actress, which is the only reason I ever actually watched the movie, because I was like, well, that's interesting, and uh, Margaret O'Brien really wasn't in a whole lot of stuff, so I imagine this would be the only thing that she thought it was, that she thought of her in, but yeah. That is my number four, Meet Me in St. Louis, one of my favorite musicals. All right, if you're going to say the title of that film, you have to say it right. It's Meet Me in St. Louis. In St. Louis. I know it's St. Louis, but you got to say it's Meet Me in St. Louis. Come on. Tom. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, Zach, number three. 
Okay, number three is taking a page out of, I guess, my own book. I'm going with something fairly obscure. It's from 1971. It's a Canadian film called Mon Antoine, uh, and it's set in Quebec in the 1920s, I believe, in the middle of the uh, kind of asbestos crisis that was plaguing the region. Actually, it was in the 1940s. Excuse me, I just looked it up. Um, but it is set in this small town, and uh, it's told from the point of view of this teenager. And uh, he's he lives with his, I believe it's his extended relatives in like the grocery store in the town. And it's set over the course of Christmas time, I think three or four days. And what's kind of interesting about the film is he has to, he's summoned along with his uncle, I believe, to transport a dead body from this remote village in northern Quebec back down to the village where they're at. And so it's sort of this, it, it's not really a survival movie, but it's kind of about these two characters who are isolated with one another and have to brave the, uh, the elements to transport this body back. Um, really well done, really unique film, uh, lots of unique films coming out of Canada at that time, um, and just a kind of unique spin of uh, the Christmas spirit. So, Manon Antoine, great French-Canadian classic. Uh, my number three film is one that I can almost guarantee will not be on your guys' list because I don't think anyone else likes this film as much as I do. Um, it is the 2009 adaptation of A Christmas Carol. This it was the uh, Robert Zemeckis animated version starring Jim Carrey and uh, Gary Oldman, two of the uh, great chameleons of our time. And I really enjoyed this version. I thought it was uh, it was very good. It was one of the best uses of Zemeckis's uh, special kind of animation, as he kind of does a motion capture with it. Jim Carrey plays Ebenezer Scrooge as well as all three of the ghosts. Uh, Gary Oldman plays uh, Bob Marley as well, or Marley as well as Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim. Uh, it, it was a great uh, great use of it. I love Jim Carrey. I love all that he does. And the, I thought he was incredible in this. And like I said, it was a great use of that animation to bring this kind of magical story into a more magical uh, world. So, 2009's A Christmas Carol, my number three. I am shocked that your 2000s representative was not Love Actually, so that makes it interesting. I know, it was a debate between Me the too. two, and I figured more people would be talking about it, so I, I decided to uh, try something different. Okay, uh, my number three is from 1988, it is Die Hard, which is another non-traditional Christmas movie. Uh, it's a brilliant action movie set during uh, a Christmas party in a skyscraper with a terrorist plot. They kidnap basically everybody in the building, and Bruce, Bruce Willis's John McClane gets to save the day. It's, uh, I don't know, filled with great one-liners and maybe the mo one of the most indispensable villains of the 1980s, played by the great Alan Rickman. Yeah, I mean, everyone's seen it. It's it's awesome. Yippee-ki-yay! That's my number three. Is it really a Christmas film, though? Oh, Absolutely. It's good, definitely the Christmas yes. spirit. I would argue that Die Hard Two is more of a Christmas film because it looks like it's more winter set. Yeah, it takes place on the exact same day. It's just ones in L.A. and ones in New York. Are so you saying what? Christmas films can't be set in L.A.? No, Tangerine yeah, I is. Guess I did no have Tangerine on my list, so <laughs> thanks for calling me out, Terry. Yeah, good job. yeah. Shut up! No, give me your number two. <laughs> 
Okay, my number two film is also a representative from the 80s, and that is Igmar Bergman's classic, Fanny and Alexander. Now, this one maybe is a little bit debatable whether it's truly a Christmas film or not, because really only the first hour or so of this film takes place at Christmas, but it's kind of like the wedding scene in a deer hunt, The Deer Hunter. It kind of just is all sprawling and all over the place. I mean, it's just this great kind of Christmas party to get you in the mood and the atmosphere of these characters who are living in Sweden at the turn of the 20th century, and it introduces you to um, Alexander and his sister Fanny and their mother Emil as they celebrate with relatives. It has the single greatest fart joke in the history of cinema and um, it's just very merry and it's kind of interesting because the rest of the movie takes this really dark turn when their mother kind of remarries this stern disciplinarian and so the kids kind of have to deal with that. Um, and there's sort of surreal stuff that happens, but that's as the movie goes along. The first hour of it, which is the Christmas part, is really merry and fun to watch, and uh, it's Bergman's probably most uh, joyous, uh, funny film. Um, and it and watch the TV version, even though it's significantly longer than the the film version. Um, but both are great. Uh, it's Bergman's best film, and it holds up uh, every time I watch it at Christmas. All right. Well, my number two is the one that uh, Todd just mentioned. It's uh... 1988's Die Hard. Um, I was actually just thinking for a similar reason we have Die Hard on here. My 2000s representative very easily could have been almost famous, uh, considering the opening scene is them celebrating Christmas in July. <laughs> or, or June. Was it June or July? I think it was... So it wouldn't be commercialized. I think it was July. Anyways. Yeah. Anyways. So Die Hard is uh, my number two... Uh, for all the reasons Todd mentioned, John McClane, one of the greatest uh, action heroes um, of all time, I'll say. Uh, and, again, a wonderful villain in Hans Gruber, brought by Alan Rickman, in his first film role. Wow. He started off his film career with Hans Gruber. So, uh, for that alone, and, again, on top of that, you have Sergeant Al Powell, played by Reginald Vell Johnson, which spawned Family Matters where he plays a cop there. So I think you don't have the great sitcom of the 90s in Family Matters without Die Hard. So for all those things, Die Hard, great Christmas movie, number two. Okay. Uh, my number two is from 2003. It is Terry Zwigoff's Bad Santa, which uh, as you can see, the idea, my idea of a great Christmas movie is not uh, ones that are actually uplifting, which is a uh, Definitely represented in these four movies. Uh, this, uh, yeah, this movie has Billy Bob Thornton in his uh, absolutely in his element. He plays a con man who is also a, a mall Santa who robs department stores after hours, and he's got a dwarf as his uh, partner in crime who is uh, his acting elf. And uh, in this particular Christmas that they show, they run into problems with uh, a very determined. Uh, mall security guard and he befriends a young boy which kind of complicates things and uh it's a hilarious movie and uh one of the funniest movies of the 2000s it's a uh, bad santa my number two christmas movie all right oh and we for did forget to mention at the start of this even though it doesn't necessarily apply fargo was off limits no picking of fargo exactly it's I'm not, not a christmas movie yeah, i'm not sure if it even takes place at christmas we, we don't know. It doesn't matter. We can't pick it. Yeah, I think it does. We can't That's pick true. it. We should just say this is the Fargo-less power rankings. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> now the big reveal. Our number ones. Zach, go for it. Well, I mean, it's hard to think of Christmas without 
uh, my number one film, and that is from 1946, It's a Wonderful Life, which I think is the only Christmas movie that transcends Christmas. Actually, the majority of the movie doesn't even take place around Christmas, but it's the timeless story of the small-town folk hero, George Bailey, as he grows up and comes of age and grows uh, more aware of the world and the evils in it as personified by Mr. Potter and we're aware of all the we're aware of all the beloved characters and Bert and Ernie and Uncle Billy and Nick and uh, Martini um, great uh, local flair and atmosphere and um, it's just a Christmas without its wonderful life isn't Christmas they should just cancel the holiday if, it, if you don't watch that movie uh, it's a perfect movie so I'd be shocked if number one on either of your list is something different and severely disappointed. I had, I had a 40s movie, so it's obviously not. Uh, oh, yeah, because I had Meet Me in St. Louis. Well, it is number one on my list. It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, listening, listening to you talk about it, they should make a movie about um, what life would be like now if It's a Wonderful Life had never been made. Oh, what a great idea. I think James, I, James Franco and Seth Rogen should make it. Yes, it should be called It's a Wonderful Movie. Yes. Directed by Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, for all the reasons Zach just said, it's a wonderful life. It it is a classic for for a good reason. It um, like you said, transcends Christmas. You have um, Jimmy Stewart and what became the role he. I would say he's most known for uh, worldwide. Uh, absolutely incredible film. Uh, great heart to it. Great message to it as well. Um, it's something that everyone can uh, can relate to and get something out of. Number one, it's a wonderful life. I really do like that movie. It's actually one of my honorable mentions, but it's not my number one, and I'm kind of cheating, mentions. sort of. My number one is from 1965. It's uh, the short film uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. And uh, I think it's definitely the best Christmas movie. <laughs> And, uh, yeah. <laughs> in, uh, Charlie, Charlie Brown, Brown Christmas. What? Uh, Go on. Charlie Brown, uh, uh, <laughs> doesn't like what Christmas has become, so he sort of reluctantly agrees to direct the school Christmas pageant, and, uh, he tries to restore the true meaning of Christmas with the help of his friends, especially Linus, who helps the, uh, pathetic little Christmas tree with his blanket, uh, it's as charming as movies come, and the best representation of Charlie Brown and of Christmas. The 28-minute short film for made-for-TV, Char A Charlie Brown Christmas. My number one. Wow. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not a bad choice. I don't know about number one, but it's not a bad choice to have on your list, I for could, sure. I, I can imagine a movie about uh, what life would be like if we had never seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, and that would be like every Christmas for me, because I... You know, I don't. I, I haven't watched that movie in like twenty years. <laughs> well, yeah, it's definitely a, ch a children's movie, but whatever. And what That's... happened to your your dark Christmas movies? That's like the most like ridiculously oh, I realize puerile, that. optimistic. Four, four it's a Wonderful Life. It's very dark over undertones. It's about suicide and, and depraved capitalism. I mean, you See, can't get darker than It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Uh, any honorable mentions for you guys? Yeah. I had, uh, my honorable mentions were 2008's A Christmas Tale and It's Wonderful Life, National Lampoon's vaca Christmas Vacation, and 2011's Tuesday After Christmas. Yeah, I was, I was going to, um, 
mention A Christmas Tale as well. I've never seen A Christmas Tale, but it's French and, uh, and obscure, so I was maybe just going to sneak it on my list, even though I haven't seen it. But um, Wouldn't be uh, the first I'm, time, Zach. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm amazed that, that A Christmas Story didn't make anyone's list. I mean, what's, what's going on there? I guess Die Hard's in the 1980s, so you prefer that, but... Uh, you know, Christmas Story was my number six, I guess, um, and probably should have made my list, so shocked to not see it there. Yeah, next one on my list in the 80s would have definitely been Christmas Vacation. That's on my honorable mention. Love Actually is on my honorable mention. Uh, Home Alone, like I'd said before. Um, but yeah, I think I think the 40s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s are the only decades I've seen a Christmas movie, so I was quite limited in what I could choose. Okay, uh, now it is time to see what we say for Adam's list. And, uh, and Zach, you started us off, so why don't you give us your, since you're the reigning champ, let's hear your predictions for Adam's top five Christmas movies. And he also had, right, Todd, you gave him the parameter that only one per decade, yeah. right? Okay, so let's see, let's, let's hear it. What do you got, Zach? I'm going to go Die Hard, Home Alone, Elf, Krampus and Batman Christmas special animated um, saga. Is there such a movie as that? <laughs> Batman animated Christmas from, from like the. 50s? I, I don't. I don't yeah, know. I don't think so. A very Batman Christmas. There we go. <laughs> it was animated. All right, I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Uh, mine's very similar to yours, I think, actually. I'm going to go number one, Home Alone, number two, It's a Wonderful Life, number three, A Christmas Story, number four, Elf, and number five, I'm going to go with the Star Wars Christmas special. Oh, good one, Terry. Dang it. Yeah. I should, I yeah. should have thought of that. Okay. All right. Mine, I'm going with number one, Die Hard, number two, Love Actually, number three, Home Alone, number four, It's a Wonderful Life, and number five, Iron Man 3. <laughs> Iron Man 3. There we go. Now we're talking. Yes, Mandarin. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I remember. I remember. I always thought it was weird that that was a that was a Christmas movie and it came out in May. I uh, I remember when I watched it. I uh, I wrote a review for it in the uh, in a, as a poem adaptation of "Twas the Night Before Christmas." Um. Anyways, okay. So let me open up Adam's list here. Here we go. Adam's list. Honorable mentions first. He says the one per decade killed him. Uh, honorable mentions, he's got Die Hard, Christmas Vacation, Nightmare Before Christmas, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, In Bruges, and The Santa Claus. That Those are his, uh, his honorable mentions. So, number five, The Night Before. Ah, I was going to put that, wow. too. <laughs> number four, Love Actually. That's one. Number three, It's a Wonderful Life. Number two, Home Alone. Number one, A Christmas Story. I got three. So did I. I got one. <laughs> Face off. I got three, but I think, I think I'm think i the winner because I'm the only one that had number one. Did you say Christmas Story? No, I die hard. So I, I got, because that's how Zach won last time. That's the tiebreakers who has the highest ones on the list. So. Congratulations. I win. First time. I got it. You know Adam the yeah. best. I, I know. I, was, just, I, am, I am shocked. Elf was not on this list. You should just win for saying Star Wars Christmas special. I mean, that just was <laughs> an awesome ch choice. I completely forgot about that. 
Yeah, but then afterwards I realized it was in the 80s and so was Christmas Story, so, oh well. <laughs> I don't even know if Adam has seen Star Wars Christmas Special. It was just cool that you mentioned it. Yeah, I, well, you know, you gotta throw it out. It, it's Star Wars month. I had to I had to go with it. There you go. Okay, so I will be choosing our uh, our power rankings for our next, our next podcast. All right. It is now time for us to move on and go to our Oscar trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. He's going to beat me every time. Oscar trivia. Once again, we have Todd and Zach here for another Oscar trivia showdown. Um, before we get to this, uh, this uh, version of Oscar trivia... The winner gets to choose a film for uh, for someone to watch, and the choice was for me to finally see Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So I watched that. Actually, I watched it yesterday, um, and I gotta say, this is a film unlike anyone I've seen before. Uh, I find it interesting. It's it's a very different dark comedy. It's dark because it's talking about like nuclear war and like the world ending. However, it's really silly for being a, a dark comedy. The, the humor in it is, is, very, uh, is more witty and silly than a lot of the dark comedies that we see today. Where today it's more like situational, here's real life things and here's the humor that happens in it. This is very, uh, very different in that sense. Uh, Peter Sellers is absolutely ridiculous, playing three different roles um, throughout, the, throughout the movie. Um, I, I thought it was really fun. It was a, it was a fun movie, really funny. Um, like I said, unlike anything I've seen. So yeah, Doctor Strange Love, good recommendation. Thanks guys. I'm glad you My actually feel, liked it. I can walk. I <laughs> <laughs> see the big board. There's no fighting in the war room. <laughs> I I love that. I loved the uh, the appearance by James Earl Jones on the plane too. I didn't expect that. Very young James Earl Jones. Yeah. Very young James Earl Jones. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, good movie. Good movie. Okay. So, I think we're gonna just say that the the rules are the uh, the winner of Oscar trivia gets to uh, have someone out of the three of us watch a movie, or maybe they could recommend a movie for both both people to watch, or one of us, something like that. Uh, so you can choose to have the loser watch, or you can have ha, uh, choose to have me watch. It's up to you. Okay. I think this uh, this round of Oscar trivia is going to be a little more competitive. Uh, as last time we were in 1939, way, way back machine. This time around, it's nowhere gonna, not going to be anywhere near as old. Uh, we are looking at the 1993 Oscars. 1993. So... Uh, once again, this is the movies that came out in 1993, uh, and the awards show that took place on March 21st, 1994, honoring the 93 movies. We will go through the major categories, and we will go back and forth. If, um, if one of them can't get one, the other will get a point. If uh, there are uh, some left over on the board after they are done, the other person can get another point for every one that they can get. That has not yet been said. And if we need a tiebreaker, we'll go into some of the tech categories, like we had to do a couple times ago. All right. So, 1993, are you guys ready? 
Ready. Yeah. All right. Well, Todd, you won last time. So you get to choose once again. Do you want to go first for best picture or do you want to go second? I'll go first. You'll go first. Okay. So 1993 Oscars best picture, Todd. The winner was go ahead. Schindler's List. That is correct. The Piano. Correct. The Remains of the Day. Correct. The Fugitive. Correct. In the Name of the Father. Correct. We ran a cat. I think it's the first time we've ran a category since we've been uh, keeping track like this. Well, it's not 1939. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, there are only five movies. <laughs> yeah, instead of 14 or whatever. All right. Best actor. Uh, Zach, you go first on this one. Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Correct. Daniel Day-Lewis in The Name of the Father. Correct. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne in What's Love Got to Do With It? Correct. Liam Neeson in Schindler's List? Correct. Harrison Ford in The Fugitive? Incorrect. Todd gets a point. Todd, do you know what the fifth one is? I think it's Anthony Hopkins in The Remains of the Day. It is, correct. Good call. So... Uh, I gave you each a, a point for uh, for running best picture, so it is a three to one game. Todd is in front. Todd, you start out best actress. Holly Hunter, in the piano. Correct. Uh, Emma Thompson in the Remains of the Day. Correct. Angela Bassett in What's Love Got to Do with It. Correct. I'm out. I'm out. Sorry. Got nothing. Alright, Todd gets the point. Todd, do you know either of the other two? Uh, no, but I would like to say Patricia Arquette and True Romance should have been. <laughs> <laughs> should have and were are two different things. Alright, the two you guys are missing are Stockard Channing for oh. Six Degrees of Separation oh. and Deborah Winger for Shadowlands. Tough ones. Those were tough ones. Those were really tough ones. Okay. Now we go to Zach. Zach, best supporting actor. Well, I, I'll preface this by saying the supporting actor category in 93 was one of the great categories of all time. Um, and the winner that year was Tommy Lee Jones for The Fugitive. Correct. Todd. John Malkovich in The Line of Fire. Correct. Leonardo DiCaprio in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Correct. Ray Fiennes, Schindler's List. Correct. And yes, I think I might be blanking on the last. No, Pete Postlewaite in uh, in the name of the Father. Correct. Good. So you each get a point there. We now have a score of five to two. Todd going into best supporting actress, and Todd leads off. Anna Paquin, the piano. Correct. Uh, Winona Ryder in the Age of Innocence. Correct. Uh, Emma Thompson in The Name of the Father. Correct. Uh, uh, Holly Hunter in The Firm. Correct. Um, yeah, I got nothing. Alright, Zach gets the point. Zach, do you have it? Rosie Perez in Fearless. Yes, it is. Boom! <laughs> You got one. <laughs> uh, 
All right, we are now at a five to four game. Todd still has the lead with three categories to go. Uh, this first one goes to Zach, best director. Steven Spielberg for Schindler's List. Correct. Uh, Jim Sheridan in the name of the Father. Correct. Uh, Jane Campion for the piano. Correct. Uh, James Ivory for Remains of the Day. Correct. Robert Altman for Shortcuts. Correct. I should get a Ran point. the category for that. again. It is now six to five. Moving into screenplays. Best original screenplay. Uh, Todd, you go first. Uh, the piano. Correct. Man, it's, it's kind of kind of blanking on this. Uh, Philadelphia. Correct. In the line of fire. Correct. What's love got to do with it? Incorrect. Todd gets the point. Todd, do you have either of the other two? Shortcuts? No, it's nope. Not. Nope. The last two were Dave. Oh. Wow. And Sleepless in Seattle. Okay. Very, uh, very different choices there for uh, for those ones. I don't feel so bad about not getting those. Those are tough. <laughs> All right. Uh, last category, best adapted screenplay. Zach, you lead off. Schindler's List. Correct. The Remains of the Day. Correct. Uh, shortcuts? Incorrect. Todd, do you have any of the other three? In the Name of the Father. Correct. Fugitive? Nope. The last two were The Age of Innocence and Shadowlands. Stupid Shadowlands. So, for the score of 9-5, to five, Todd is a the winner. There you go. So, Zach, in 1939, you lost 9-4. to four. And In 1993, you lose 9-5. to five. So, you know, you did a little better. Yeah, I, I don't know why we do these. He's going to beat me every time. I, I mean, I, it's it's fun, I guess, but I'm not going to beat. I've never said I know more than he does. Maybe I, I got Rosie Perez. I'll hold my head high on that. But you, you did get Rosie Perez. That was an impressive get. It was. It was. All right, so Todd, you have to uh, make a uh, film recommendation to either me or Zach, or I guess you can make one to both of us if you want. Or Adam. Um or or Adam, there we go. He's not even in this thing, and we can make him <laughs> make a. a I think I know. I think I want Zach to watch the worst movie of 2015, Spike Lee's *The Sweet Blood of Jesus*. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> random. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Zach, two weeks from now, we'll uh, we'll be expecting a report. Okay, I can't wait. <laughs> did, I bet Tommy Wiseau liked it though. So he it's possible. Did. It's possible. Okay, uh, last but not least, it is time for our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. 
Zach, why don't you lead us off with uh, with your quote you're going to leave us with? Well, uh, I was thinking about my favorite uh, number one Christmas movie of all time, which is not a Charlie Brown Christmas somehow. I realize it's kind of crazy, but uh, my number one Christmas movie of all time was It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, one of my favorite parts in that movie is when Clarence the Angel is in a bar with uh, George, a depressed George Bailey. Again, you're talking about dark Christmas movies. I don't know how it gets more dark than that. Uh, but my favorite part is when Clarence asks for a drink from Nick the bartender, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got it. Mold wine, heavy on the cinnamon, and light on the cloves. Off with you, me lad, and be lively. And then Nick says, hey, mister, we serve hard drinks in here for men who get drunk fast. And we don't need any characters around here to give the joint atmosphere. Very nice, very nice. <laughs> my, uh, my quote of the day I'm leaving you with is from uh, the most quotable film on my Christmas list, and that is Die Hard. Um, at the, uh, near the end of the movie, they're trying to, uh, they're trying to rescue everybody. And the uh, FBI, Special Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson have, uh, have gone in a helicopter to try and rescue everyone from the rooftop. And uh, the rooftop blows up, the helicopter explodes, and, uh, and uh, police uh, Captain Johnson is look or uh, uh, Robinson, police Captain Robinson is looking up at it, uh, and he says, "Oh, we're going to need some more FBI guys, I guess." One of my favorite quotes from that movie. It's great. <laughs> one of many. One of many. One of many. All right, Todd, what's your uh, quote? It's from my number one Christmas movie, A Charlie Brown Christmas. And uh, it's Charlie Brown talking to the uh, the dirtiest character in the show, uh, Pigpen. He says, Pigpen, you're the only person I know who can raise a cloud of dust in a snowstorm. And if you know the character in Charlie Brown, it obviously makes sense. Yes, yes. All right, well, that is our podcast for this time. Uh, you guys have any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Uh, Sam Rockwell is a bad policeman. Don't <laughs> like him. He's a bad, bad man. Anyone bad who lives- man. Yeah, just bad. Don't trust him. Can't you see Shia LaBeouf playing that redemption. part, though? I'd like to see Doug Baldwin play that part. Well, <laughs> that might be problematic. Uh... Thank you so much for listening to Almost Sideways Podcast. Uh, Catch us all over the internet, wherever we are, and we will catch you next time. So that was a disaster. Catch you on a Monday.